What's hotter, when they blow on the declaration or when Abigail says, you're so good at solving puzzles, Ben? You're listening to another episode of Chaos on the Set. Your regular hosts, Kate and Shruti, are here along with our special guest. Uh, returning for the second time, it's our resident National Treasure Scholar, Matt Liberman. Woohoo! Did you want to say a few words, Matt? I don't think you understand how much I love these movies. <laughs> That's why you're our resident scholar. See, we gave you a fancy title. Liz, just... is there anything you know more than you know National Treasure? Um, maybe The Departed, but... Wow, full the, claim. They're about the same. Well, if we ever watch The Departed, you're welcome on again. If we watch The Departed, but I feel like we'll need libs on for, like, the Boston I think representation. No offense to you, Kate. Excuse me? <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay, well, sorry. I'm gonna I'm gonna gloss over that very offensive <laughs> sentence that Shruti just you're said. You're from Western just... Massachusetts. Oh my god, do we not count as part of the state? Jesus, Boston is not a state. Well, like, Boston is Massachusetts, so, like, okay. Anyway, um, if you're, you know, we've just thrown around the word National Treasure Scholar, so if you guys are probably guessing, Matt was on the podcast last year for National Treasure. He's now returning for this episode where we're going to cover National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. Um, it was released in 2007, three years after the original movie. Um... If you guys listened to our last episode of National Treasure, you know that this movie, these both of these movies, inspired me to want to be a historian as a kid. Um, I'm not a historian. I work in entertainment, but I still love history. You could maybe say I'm horny for history <laughs> if we're just throwing you know some fancy terms out there. Um, and in a similar vein, Matt is also horny for these movies. So much. So he's the he's so much. So he's the perfect guest for this episode where we return to this beloved franchise, at least beloved within the circle of the three of us. And if you've made it this far into the podcast of us talking about being horny for both history <laughs> and the National Treasure franchise, thank you. And you're going to love the rest of this podcast, I guarantee it. And we promise it's like not going to be like a rated X podcast. Like we just say horny for history we're not gonna go any further okay <laughs> well we might go a little further but not if we talk about abigail and ben truth he's gonna be like oh listen i'm just looking at our notes here and i i just know that we will go a little bit further than it's okay you know what it's a tease for the future you'll see this is already very chaotic Let's dive in by starting with talking about what has happened in between the two movies, National Treasure and National Treasure colon Book of Secrets, which was the movie when it was titled the movie when it was released into theaters. However, when it was released onto video on demand, it was titled National Treasure 2 Book of Secrets. So we'll accept either title here on the podcast. Oh, you were pissed that I said the, the number two, weren't you? No, no, no. I was fine with it. If you had called the first movie National Treasure 1. National Treasure 1, we I almost did, but I didn't want to give you an aneurysm but, on the podcast. But anyway, let's let's talk about what has happened in the in-between time between National Treasure, the original, and National Treasure 2, Book of Secrets. Um, Abigail and Ben get together at the end of the first movie, but at the beginning of the second, they're no longer together. Around how much time do y'all think has passed? Why do y'all think that they split up? What's the deal here? My guess is probably 
five or six months. Uh, Interesting. At I would say, at most, at absolute most, a year and a half. Um, I can't imagine. Um, can't imagine Riley taking too long to write his book. Um, and so, <laughs> if if this is just coming out, I I would imagine anywhere between five months and eighteen months, but leaning closer to the five month mark. It's a long enough time for. Patrick to have developed like a good enough relationship with Abigail to like like her and know that he mm-hmm. likes them together. But I don't think Helen Mirren, Ben's mom, has met Abigail yet. Oh, I think they, they have. They have. But then how come she never talks to her? <laughs> because this movie just wants to barely squeak by the Bechtel test. I just, so they I literally have had to talking too much. I finished the movie last night and I FaceTimed Kate because I was like, Kate, there's so many times in this movie where Helen Mirren's character can just turn to Abigail and say, Abigail, look at how great this thing is. But she keeps saying, Ben, look how great this ben. thing is. And if she only directed her comment to Abigail, the movie would pass the Bechtel test. But she just does not talk to Abigail the entire well, time. It does pass the Bechdel test, though. Because she talks because to the female person cataloging? There is, no. There is one... Well, maybe that. But there's also one sentence where when Abigail and then um, Ben's dad are fighting... And, not Abigail, I'm sorry. Um, his parents are fighting. Mm-hmm. And then Abigail goes to the mom. She goes, hey, like Emily, why don't we... Um, like stop fighting and look at this like pl- like this plank and can you decipher it? <laughs> and so I read on a like I went on like that website that rates if like any movie is passed Bechdel test and someone wrote, yeah like she does say to her can we get to work? So it does technically pass. At, at the end of the movie, passes. Helen Mirren's character Ben's mom also asks like a female cataloger to make sure she's yeah. cat. But I think that's technically that because, doesn't count because she doesn't have a name. She she's not have a name. Yeah. So the it, the only sentence that counts is like Abigail saying to Emily, <laughs> "Hey, can we like decipher this?" It's just okay, but I think I think that's key. So why do y'all? What's your proof that Abigail and Helen Mirren have spent time together? Because she literally ices Abigail. She will not refer to her at all for well, the entire movie. In the scene when they're getting out of the city of gold, uh, she Riley introduces himself to her. Right. Yeah. Which is, by the way. Sorry to take us on another tangent, but I Justin Bartha could not go to set on the same day as Helen Mirren because literally they're right outside the office and Justin Bartha's like, I think I'm just going to sit out here. And then they go into Helen Mirren's office and shoot a whole scene. I, I respect them for like committing to it and like committing to in the world of the show, these two characters have not met and like making sure they address that at the end of the movie. But it's just really funny because it was definitely a scheduling conflict. <laughs> it had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think I think she's deaf Abigail has definitely met Emily. And I I would peg the time difference or the time skip between the two movies at maybe like a year, like ten months to a year. Because she does like she knows all about, like, the history with his parents. Uh, she's, like, I think when they go, maybe I'm remembering wrong, but when they go into the office of, like, Emily's office, she's like, Ben, Abigail! So she definitely knows her. I just don't know how well. The other thing is, I feel like knowing Abigail and knowing, like, her roles within uh, just just her job and who she's met past like I, I feel like there's no way that 
if she were meeting her for the first time, she would just call her Emily. Yeah. No, yeah, that's fair. And, I mean, like, Abigail knows who Emily is and knows the relationship with them well enough for when, and knows that she does Native American translation because at the point when uh, Ben is trying to convince his dad to go to his mom for translation, Abigail knows what they're fighting about and Riley does not. So yeah, I think that tells you that like Riley, sorry, Ben and Abigail were together long enough for them to like talk, Ben to like talk to her about his parents' divorce and his childhood and all of that. And then they split up for some reason. I mean, I think we all know the reason is that Ben is an asshole and probably a terrible person to live with. But, like, what do y'all think caused this rift? I can't imagine how difficult. Look, I I know this. I know I can be a know-it-all. There's no <laughs> way I would be able to deal with Ben. <laughs> Two know-it-alls in a house together wouldn't be good. And, and like, I, he is pretty much the ultimate i just feel like the reason they split them up is like i don't think even the writers know like i have the audio from when they're fighting in buckingham house when it's no longer for a show they're just like having their argument can i play it for you guys yeah okay let me play it for y'all because i think it's like obvious proof that they just didn't know what they were doing like this writing just feels so surface that like what even is this fight hold on give me a second Right in the middle there, the part where I always assume that I'm right. Riley, get us out of here, which I don't get. Because if I turn out to be right after I assume that I'm right, then I'm correct, yes? When you get to a conclusion without asking and you happen to be right, you got lucky. I, I get lucky a lot. Actually, I was going to say you can keep up. And maybe you could come and move back in with me? No, you used the word so. So? So when you say so, it means you're angry. Sometimes. And then sometimes it doesn't. It's sort of like a puzzle. And you're so good at puzzles, I'm sure you'll figure it out. So. Okay, wait, that is so... <laughs> That is such the, 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 that's like a structure for like a toxic relationship that they just built up again for her being like, hey, like I say so, but you're never going to know what I actually mean by it. But you like puzzles. You can figure it out. I'm like, Abigail, use communication. What is that? Because there, it seems like the reason they broke up in the first place is because they weren't communicating well and over well, something vague that right, we don't really understand. What is this right thing? They're like, they're fighting over like how Ben always thinks he's right and he like just says, like from what I can piece together, it's that like whenever they're in an argument or like something is up for a debate, Ben knows the answer and he's usually mm -hmm. right and Abigail gets mad at him for jumping to conclusions even if he is in fact right and this situation has replicated itself over and over again to the point of them deciding to break up. Is that the read y'all have? Or? I, I also, she also mentioned how, like, um, he will assume he's right and then not even ask her opinion or her permission or any input from her on his actions he's going to take because he already thinks he's right. So I guess I could get why, like, if that was a recurring thing. Like, I mean, yeah, he seems insufferable. Like, like, literally, oh, yeah. later in the clip, it's not in the part that we clipped out, but 
he's she's like, okay, let me in on your plan. He's like, okay, would you like to come with me? And then he says, ridiculous. It's far too dangerous. How dangerous yeah. is it? Like they're fine. They get in and out. They're not gonna die. Yeah, yeah. nobody. Like, sh- they're gonna get arrested. Yeah, maybe. they're not gonna. No one's gonna shoot and, them. Like, like, the, what are the bobbies gonna shoot them? Exactly. In and who is this man telling her what is too dangerous for her and not? Like that is for Abigail to decide. I'm sorry. I'm just. I'm a little too heated for her being this early in the podcast. <laughs> I agree that Ben's insufferable. I don't know if the saying it's too dangerous, though, is like actually insinuating that it's too dangerous. I just think that could be attuned to that he and Riley had a plan and they did not account for this. And Oh, interesting. So he's not concerned for her danger. He just says you coming <laughs> will make the situation more dangerous. No, not even that it'll make it more dangerous. It's just like when you're... I think- when you're in Buckingham Palace doing something highly, highly illegal, maybe it's best to stick to the plan. <laughs> Are you defending Benjamin Franklin Gates right now? <laughs> I'm not defending Ben Gates because I agree. He's an insufferable asshole that nobody could like ever want to date. But if there is a large risk as to being imprisoned for a long, long time, I don't blame sticking to the plan. But here's the thing is, what is his plan? Because he then closes the door on Abigail. Or sorry, closes the like security um, confinement the that cage. they're being held in. Yeah. So Abigail can't get back in. And if he refuses to let her come with him, then eventually somebody's going to see her no longer being in security and say, what's the deal? Why are you here? Like in that situation, the safest, least dangerous thing to do is take her with you so you don't have to deal with that future questioning. Or if they leave her, like, in the cage alone, and then he's gone, they're going to be like, where is he? She's going to be like, oh. Like, you were in a cage. Exactly. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean you don't know where he is? Um, I don't know if it was maybe Ben's, like, impulse reaction to be like, oh, I don't want her to be in, like, harm's way, so I'm going to, like, make her stay here. But it was, like, kind of dumb to say it at that point. He, I don't know. He also seems like a, uh, like a solo artist. I mean... Yeah. Based on the movie, like you would think that he and Riley are very close, but Riley didn't know that they broke up. Yeah. Riley didn't know that they broke up. Let's uh, it was so the original point of this segment is like what has happened in the in between. Riley has not known that they broke up. Riley is also in massive debt now because he yeah. tried to write a book about discovering the treasure. Everyone knows that Ben, like everyone that comes to his writing authorship signing book stand knows that Ben Gates found the treasure, which means this treasure discovery was big enough for it to make the news. Everyone knows about it and everyone knows about Ben Gates, but not Riley. Like what the hell, Ben Riley is definitely to credit for finding the treasure. Why is his luck so bad? Well, I don't, it's not that he's in massive debt because of, like, the book. The reason why he's now suddenly in debt is because his car gets impounded and his car is a $5 million car. And then when it gets impounded by the IRS, now you have a $6 million tax on that. Well, and then also his accountant, like, apparently screwed him over. And he, like, bought into some kind of what is essentially, like, a scheme. He, he bought into Firefest. <laughs> he, <probably laughs> he invested into Firefest. Eight years too early, so really screwing himself over. But I just, the idea that everyone, like, he's trying to get ladies by saying he found this treasure, and nobody knows who he is, and everyone knows Ben. So that leads me to believe that in this three-year period, like, 
Ben went on all of the TV appearances, took all of the credit and all of the fame, and Riley, not knowing what to do and trying to monetize the situation out of this, wrote this book about the Templar treasure and the titular Book of Secrets, and is still struggling to make a living or survive in this town because Ben won't help him out. Yeah, and I think um, I would say probably the reason that everyone like knows the Gates family, like they're already a famous family going into, or infamous, you know, whatever yeah. way you want to put it, but like people are like who at least follow like politics and follow like history and that kind of things already knows the Gates family is a family that's obsessed over finding treasure. They have like a very long lineage of ancestors that lived in America. So they're already famous. So like I guess it's not a huge stretch to be like they know like Ben was the figurehead of that whole thing and Riley was cuz no one's ever also being like Abigail, you're the one who found the treasure. It's just Ben. Um which is messed up. It's very messed up. 100%. And like I was, uh, not to bring things back to the original National Treasure movie, but I was listening to the Bechdel cast's episode on National Treasure before we covered National Treasure Book of Secrets. And they were talking about how, like, at the end of, like, the the preamble for National Treasure, right, where the person dies saying the secret lies with Charlotte, and then the movie picks up with them finding the Charlotte, which means in the 180 years of trying to find this treasure, they never made it to the second clue. Like, they still were trying to figure out what the Charlotte means, which means Ben didn't do fucking shit. It was Riley and Abigail's added assistance that what? actually got them through through clue two through eight, right, well, and actually Ab- get to the final treasure. Abigail wasn't there for finding the Charlotte. Abigail wasn't yeah. there for finding the Charlotte, but it she was, was there for every single Sean, step afterwards. Yeah. It was It was basically Sean Bean that helped him find the ship. Riley was... Well, Riley also was very instrumental, because didn't he, like, detect... So, he... he something he was had under the, the ice. Yeah, he, he had the technology. Mm-hmm. Basically, what I'm saying is the entire Gates family couldn't do shit for 180 exactly. years. And they needed Riley and Abigail. Were it not for Riley and Abigail and probably also Sean Bean, nothing would have happened. And all Abigail and Riley not doing well in this in-between period between movies is bullshit. And they should get more. Well, I would say Riley's not doing well. Abigail is dating... Phil Dunphy. <laughs> Phil Dunphy. So I think she's doing pretty well. I, don't, I wouldn't say dating. I would say seeing. Uh, seeing. Went on a date. Yeah. <laughs> But if she was wise, she would have kept dating him. Because then they could have um, started a sitcom together about their family living in California. It's um, all very true. Very true. Yeah, like, similarly, like, when talking about, like, how... The first movie started with someone, you know, years ago saying, like, Charlotte, to this movie with another flashback from the 1800s of one of, you know, Thomas Gate saying, oh, like, what is the quote he says about the... debt that all men must pay. The debt that all men pay. Thank you. Thank you, our National Treasure Scholar, Matt Liberman. Um, So, again, it starts off with, like, here's a quote that someone said a long time ago jump forward we're going to try to solve that quote that our ancestors passed down to us 
Um, so it starts off structurally very similar, and throughout the movie, the two movies are pretty much, like, identical in structure. They just have different set pieces that carry them forward of different clues and different treasure they're trying to find. Um, so much so that they really have these pivotal, like, mirror scenes, which is supposed to be, I think what the writers were trying to accomplish is this is the biggest thing that happens, like, the most shocking thing that happens in the movie. Obviously, the first movie is when Nick Cage goes, I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. He does. It's a whole heist scene. And then in this movie, he, you know, everyone's arguing and he just kind of stops everyone and goes, I know what I have to do. I'm gonna kidnap the President of the United States. Everyone's like, Ben! And then he does it. And it's a whole heist kind of kidnappy scene. So they really were... I think trying to take what worked for them in the first movie and they were like, <laughs> nice. And they just kind of went with it. What do you guys think? I mean, it really feels like they thought that kidnapping the president of the United States would be the set piece of this movie. And even if like you watch, we were watching the trailer before we started recording, it makes it look like, the trailer literally makes it look like they kidnapped the president in the beginning of the movie and then the entire yeah. movie is like trying to evade being arrested for kidnapping the president. While like they're well they have him like hostage. Yeah, or which is like fine. Marketing departments are not the people that write movies and I'm not going to hold it against them for that being the case, but it's just they're two very different things and they kidnapped the president in the last third or less than third of the movie. So trying to compare the two and equate them is just it's not the same thing at all. I would agree. And, like, I also think just the way they wrote the declaration and wove that document into the first movie is much more impactful than the president just being like, yes, there's, like, a book of secrets. Here's the code how you get well, to it. That is the only purpose that the president serves. Whereas, like, the declaration has, everything. like, a very valuable code written on it. And they carry it throughout, like, a lot of the movie. Well, if you think about it, the declaration is like steps three through whatever yeah in this the kidnapping the president and finding out about the book of secrets is like step six and yeah it's, it's just one of those things where just looking at the means uh the, the means in which the process is able to be created and so like the the declaration just plays such a central role and, and i think it was a good decision um i also think it was a good decision to have the kidnapping of the president to be a lesser role in this movie. Interesting. Well, why? Maybe that's just me. Because I think that one of the things that you see in the first movie is that you have, like, some early character development, but the relationships between the characters are really built on the full chase and um, all of the conflict and trying to find... The treasure whereas in the second movie you've already been introduced to these characters you know their relationships and now you're able to see those relationships continue and, and I, I think that this movie is much more based on their relationships than the actual treasure no i get that and i don't know i think from that perspective of just relationship bases you're right what bothers me and what kind of underlined for me for this movie on why i like the first movie so much more is just the way they do the heists and the way they unravel clues and, and figure things out in this movie just means so much more base and requiring so much less skill. And if you just take this, getting into the gala for 
the Declaration of Independence heist requires, like, stealing somebody else's ID badge, doctoring that, sneaking in as a custodial worker, changing into a tux, like, in the bathroom, and then going to Abigail and stealing her thumbprint and all of that, which is, like, all very, very smart. To get into this gala with the President of the United States, he literally just, like, dives in and then pretends he was flirting with somebody, and the Secret Service is like, oh, I guess the girl he was flirting with is no longer here. Sure, walk into the gala. Like, you know, it's just, it's so much less smart. Also, just, sorry, while we're on the topic, because this is not going to come up again, but when he goes to the President of the United States, when when he's trying to, like, sweet talk him, the President of the United States says the following sentence, which I think is so funny. Oh, wait, hold on. You read the word that campaign contribution limits are not enforced on the President's birthday. Did you guys hear that? Spread the word. What did he say? He says, spread the word that campaign contribution limits are not enforced on the president's birthday. Oh, no. (laughs) And that's insane. Like, that made me like the movie that I'm like, okay, this movie is being a little smart where it can be. But sorry, hold on. I wrote down some other examples of how this movie is just not. Okay. The numbers in this movie, right? When they're trying to figure out what four code cipher will like get the resolute desk to give them the plank that they need. They try Queen Victoria's birthday, which is just like, oh, let's just Google British history. Yeah, okay, this sounds smart. You know, it's just stupid. And then the next number they try, which works, is just the number that was on the Statue of Liberty. Like there's no wisdom or conniving to that. And then again, at the end of the movie, when they're like trying to figure out where the book is hosted, it's just whatever number the president told them. You know, there's nothing like actually smart about it. There's no like Valley Forge scene. Exactly. The Valley Forge scene is so good. That's such a good scene. Yeah, I was just thinking about that one. Like, I mean, they do another kind of, as I like to call it, like Wordle thing in this movie too. (laughs) Like last one where they're, they're scrambling words to figure out what could it be. And, it's so it's so easy. It's just like literally Ben going to Patrick and being like, "What? Like, what can you tell us about Which, when Thomas died?" And then it's like but, so, the the debt that, that all men that, pay. So, that yeah. seems so, very lazy to me because that feels like something he would yes. have already known. Let me let me let me set it up again for people who didn't just watch the movie. Is they're trying to figure out what five letter word cipher can help decipher the back of the Booth diary page. And they're literally just brute forcing it, trying every five letter word that could ever exist. So Ben goes and has a heart to heart. You see Riley literally type in bacon. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So Ben goes and has a heart to heart with his dad and is like, listen, like, let's try and figure this out. We can restore Thomas's history. Is there anything else you can tell me? And then that's when his dad tells him about the debt that all men pay comment, which is like, really? Patrick never brought this up before. And that's so big. Like, how did he not remember his grandpa being like, and my dad's dying words to me were. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, I, I would say, like, as much as, like, this, like, you know, this sequel also gave me a sense of wonder when I was a kid when I watched it. I, I loved it. I ate it up. I just loved how they weaved, like, the Gates, the, you know, the fictional Gates family into U.S. history. And I thought, like, I, I loved it. But when... Now older, watching the first one versus second one. The first one like just had so much more like uh, com- like complexness. It required to it, right? a more actual cunning yes. attitude. Like you had to yes. figure things out instead of just being told after you get kidnapped what the numbers are. Well, you know, it, it, yeah. it kind of goes into the just again going into like kind of like lazy writing. I mean, 
you're flying a drone up against the Statue of Liberty in Paris, and two cops see you doing that, they're not going to help you with your riddle. No. They're literally, they get one over because <laughs> Ben because he, starts sweet talking to them about Montesquieu, and they're like, you know Montesquieu? <laughs> like, yeah, you're very lucky ooh. those cops love Montesquieu. Yeah. Those two cops are horny for French history. <laughs> Um, Kate, but you were saying, uh, you know, when you were younger, you had this more sense of wonder, which ties to a conversation Libs and I were having before you joined the Zoom about how when we were kids and we watched these movies, you know, it filled us with uh, the way that they delivered these impassioned speeches filled us with a sense of passion that, at least for me, on looking back on it, um, I feel more cynical about the words. There's a common phrase uh, that's uttered in both the first and second movie, like, that's, people don't think that way anymore, or people don't talk that way anymore, or people don't believe that anymore. Libs, do you want to give some more context on these? Yeah, I, I would just say, like, if you think about the three examples, there are two in the first movie, and there's one in the second movie. The two in the first movie are when Ben is reading the lines on the declaration to Riley before they steal it, and... All the others... But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. People don't talk that way anymore. Beautiful. Huh. No idea what you said. It means if there's something wrong, those who have the ability to take action have the responsibility to take action. I'm gonna steal it. <clears throat> what? I'm gonna steal the Declaration of Independence. <clears throat> uh, Ben? This is okay. So that's the first one, and then, and then Libs. I don't have the audio for the second one, but do you want to set the scene? Yeah. So the second one is when they're in Philadelphia. Um, it's when they're changing out of what they've been previously wearing, just because they and they they're buying new clothes. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the scene when uh, Abigail's changing room is right next to Ben's scene that Shruti loves where the doors meet. I yep, she thinks it's so hot, and, yeah. And, and Abigail goes on her toes. Uh, yeah, okay, <laughs> we don't need to talk about feet right now. But, but Ben is basically explaining, like, that trying to find these treasures has been all he's ever known in his life, and his whole life has been trying to uphold his family's name and prove that they're not, like, these crazy heretics, that they're actually woven into the very makings of the country. Um, and Abigail says, like, people don't talk like that anymore. And then Ben says, no, but they think that way. And then we have the final instance of the moment, which is in the second movie, and he's talking to the president after kidnapping him, and he says, Because you're the president of the United States, sir, whether by innate character or the oath you took to defend the Constitution, for the weight of history that falls upon you. I believe you to be an honorable man, sir. Gates, people don't believe that stuff anymore. 
They want to believe it. And see, when I was a kid and all of this talk, like all of this very romantic talk about you know, dying for your country and doing your duty and being the ultimate president or whatever. Like when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, this is empowering and impassioned. And on this most recent rewatch, I was like, this is patriotism propaganda. Like, yes, it is. I was just going to say that. Um, I agree. I think um, it's a very just like family friendly Disney. It literally has the music swelling in the background. Exactly. And I don't think, especially given that these movies are, like, about 15 years old, I do think that, like, if they had tried to be almost, like, too progressive in these films, like, that's not... I mean, they didn't try to be too progressive because the whole cast is white. (laughs) Well, they, obviously, they did not. But do you get what I mean? Like, this was Disney being, let's make, like, a family-friendly treasure movie about U.S. history. And they really kind of uh, looked at the U.S.'s history with rose-colored glasses and were like, everything was great, like, treasure. <laughs> and they definitely never addressed the well, very especially considering dark parts of... The context of this treasure is like, we're going to find this Native American treasure and return it. Return it to who? You're not going to return it yeah, to... Yeah, <laughs> you're not returning it. It's, going, it's probably going to the government. We also saw that last movie... The city they found went to, like, you know, line their pockets so they could buy Ferraris. Yeah. The thing that I said to to Shruti before we started recording is I I think it's a little idealistic. Um, Yeah. I don't know. Like, like I I certainly understand, like, the the argument of, like, patriotic propaganda. Um, Like, when I listen to the second one, the third one, but the second movie, for instance, and he's talking about, like, just the, the honor of presidency i i think it's more idealistic i think it's more of like this is what we as a people wish the presidency was and that maybe maybe like i almost thought it was a commentary of like this is what the presidency isn't anymore but this is what we wish it would be because i mean like this like the movie was made in the midst of the iraq war yes and i i would say a common trend just not just in this country, but in all history around the world, is you look at history with this sense of, even if you weren't there, with this sense of nostalgia. And, like, a common thing I hear is, like, oh, like, you know, this country was so good, like, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, or, like, oh, like, the presidents of, like, the founding fathers, like, whatever, they they had, their ideals people. were, they, like, but people... History erodes the edges of what was actually happening. And as time passes, the reality of what was actually happening during that time is obviously, it's looked at differently now. And so, like, that's why, like, you know, I think, like, we can, we're very critical of our current presidents, right? I'm sure people back in the 1700s were also critical of George Washington. It's just, like... As, as history goes on, those feelings and those thoughts, it erodes and you kind of look back and it's like this little picture perfect Well, it, it kind of goes thing. into the whole, like, the spoils of war are written, like, are won by the victor and, like, mm-hmm. history is written by those who, by the victor. Um, yes. 
Well, especially in this movie where you have two white men arguing over the legacy of their white grandfathers, where we all know that their grandfathers were definitely massive racists. Like, let's just be real. (laughs) Well, they definitely were not. Especially Albert Pike. Because, because, as we know, as we were talking about beforehand, like, the, the Gates family is not a real family. Albert Pike was a Confederate general. Yes. So, when you really think about it, like, to basically, like, um, exonerate Mitch in this film and to, because he was like, I just want my family to, like, have its legacy. And it's like, you want your Confederate great-great-great-grandfather to, like, have his name cleaned when he was with the Confederacy? Like, he literally, after they find the city of gold, and they're like, yay, boo. And then Mitch is like, yeah, I'm really happy for you, but this was a chance for the right. Wilkinson yeah. family to make their name on history. And it's like, you're a creepy man that should be locked <laughs> up. Like, any any white man that says, hold on, what's the quote? I mean, I he held a gun to Ben's mom. That was enough for me to be like, you bitch. Like, who the fuck are you? He says... Oh, I'm just fascinated by history, the Civil War in general. I'm a descendant of the Confederate General Albert Pike. The second anyone tells you they're a fan of history and descendant of a Confederate general, you run. You run away. Like, that man is not good news. And the fact that at the end of the movie, he still gets credit for... Finding the treasure when he didn't find the treasure, all he did was antagonize Ben Gates so he would get mobilized into finding the treasure. Like, he deserves no credit. And if anything, he should be, like, put in the history books for every terrible thing he did. Yeah, I... And again, though, like, these things, when you watch as a kid, like you said, Truthy, you really gloss over it. You don't, like... It's very, like, one-dimensional when you watch this film and you're like, yeah, like, history, America. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I I love how they weave history into these puzzles and these, and these treasure hunts in these films. Like, I think that's the strongest part about these films and it's what made me so excited as a kid. But, yeah, I definitely, like, had no opposition to these, like, basically, like, propaganda patriotic speeches that they give. And now that I'm older and I'm able to think a little more critically and I have a deeper understanding of kind of what's right and wrong in this country. And it's very like, yeah, I don't know. I just felt like you would see if they ever came out with like another national treasure movie, they'd have to be very, very careful. (laughs) Well, they're making a national treasure three and there's also a national treasure TV series in the works. And the, the characters in the series are all dreamers. Like, Uh, see this, this is literally, I'm sure that the, it's going to be propaganda. It's the thing, but the, but the execs at Disney probably sat down and were like, what was wrong with our first movies? Oh, they were very white. And we kind of like, we let, we apologize to a Confederate guy that's not great (laughs) but with the with the themes that the previous two movies have had just like being proud of your country and like everything that it's given to you etc etc and having the cast of the series be dreamers oh they're gonna do it again so worried but i mean (laughs) when has disney ever gotten like risky with their content like you know who their target audience is. Like, they want it to be... Like, they don't want to ever upset anyone and, ever. Like the, they're trying to... At the end of the day, they're targeting you know? kids, and they're targeting people like us that grew up with the movies. Yeah. Yeah. And listen, it worked on it us. Did, it like. did. But I like that we're able to now, like, as we're older, really critically discuss this, because it 
like, and I like that we can kind of take that and be like, yes, here are the problems of this, like, the deep-rooted problems of this film, but we can still, on the other hand, enjoy what these films gave to yeah. us as children. It's just, and... if you have anybody read the Declaration of Independence at you, it's like, all right, like, let's, let's slow down. <laughs> <laughs> let's chill out. But I, but I do understand at that core, like, wanting to keep that, like, wonderment of, like, U.S. history and, like, that. Because uh, I had it as a kid, and sometimes I still, like, wish I had it more. You know what I mean? Like, you want to glor- glorify the past, really, but then when you get older, you're kind of like... Well, it, it, it all goes back to... I, I think that there there was a really creative bit uh, that Donald Glover did in one of his stand-up specials, and it's mm-hmm. about a conversation that he had with his dad, and his dad's like, oh, this is the worst time to be alive, and Donald Glover's like, what are you talking about? This is the best time to be alive. He's like, back in the day, people used to come into your village and kill you for no reason. Yeah. And it's like, kind of like the... We're j- we just were glossing over like all the terrible things that were happening in the 1700s and the 1800s. Yeah, we're talking about how people used to talk that way and not acting about the talking about the racist actions they used to take that day. Well, we can live with the fact that we understand what this movie did wrong. Hopefully, maybe in future installments, if this franchise, maybe they will get it right more. But I kind of doubt it because Disney's not known to really like you know go for the jugular in anything they're kind of they play it safe because you know they're a huge multi-trillion dollar franchise i don't know they have a lot of money so in this movie i thought there was a stark contrast in the two villain styles that they had between first movie, Sean Bean, second movie, Ed Harris. And I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on the different styles and who you thought was the better villain. I, I, I mean, it depends on what you define as the better villain, right? Like, who is scarier to me is Ed Harris, but that's because he's a massive racist. <laughs> and at the end of the day... Sean Bean is smarter, right? Like he, in the first movie, he's explaining to his friends why the P and S and Pass and Stowe are capitalized because they're names. In the second movie, all Ed Harris is doing is being like, he's wiretapping the phone. Yeah. Yeah, he knows the Booth Diary page is a fake. He's doing this because he wants to find the city of gold to get the Wilkinson family name in the history book. So he smears the Gates name to get them to also be motivated to find the city of gold. And then just follows them the entire time. Like, in terms of actual smarts, Ed Harris is not an interesting villain to follow. He's scarier because I think he would murder me. But um, I think Sean Bean is, like, a smarter and more fun villain. You know what? The funniest thing, like, the way I compare these two villains is I exactly like Shruti said. I think Ed Harris is scarier. Sean Bean is smarter and I think more interesting to watch throughout the film as he's also trying to crack these codes and sometimes he does need Ben's help but he can think for himself um the big thing is that Sean Bean is definitely a lover and appreciator of history um Ed Harris Mm -hmm. is not and I know that because Ed Harris burns a historical document right in front of Emily and like, I, I, I wrote that down. Like, the fact that he burned it and she, like, winced. She was like, please, no. Like, please don't burn it, that. The, 
Sean Bean would never burn a historical document. He loves it too much. The other thing to go with that is that uh, in the scene when Ben is trying to escape with the declaration in the first one, and uh, one of Sean Bean's thugs shoots him, he looks at him and goes, what are you doing? Like, because he's shooting the declaration. Yeah. Like, he wants the treasure, but... But he's, he looks at him like, what are you doing? Because he, at that point, doesn't have the map. The reason Nick Cage steals the Declaration of Independence is he's stealing it to protect it because he says Ian is going to destroy the Declaration to destroy the map after he steals the Declaration. Really? I really don't so, know if Ian would have, though. That's his... I mean, I don't think it's personally a sound argument on Ben's case, but at least that's what he says is the reason he's stealing it. He's like, I had to steal it to protect it. It's the only way. I wonder, though. I wonder if he, if Ian really... If he had gotten it. If he really would have done that to it, I'm, I think he would have. Uh, I do. That would be bad then. But hey, uh, hey, he didn't do it. Hey, we never said, <laughs> we never said uh, overall history. Like he's British. Maybe like if it was, if it, if it was a British <laughs> document, like, he would think differently. If it was a British document, he'd be like, no, please don't. <laughs> um, I, I, I would tend to agree. I mean, I, I thought that, um, I thought that Sean Bean's role was was way smarter he was i I, the thing that and i I think we talked about this on the first one is that you get mitch's backstory in this one Mm -hmm. you didn't get that in the first movie with sean bean and i really wanted it because he's me too way more captivating and they try to redeem um ed harris by having him sacrifice himself for all of them in the end Whereas Sean Bean just goes to prison. You're kind of like, goodbye. But um, in really, though, they should have. Um, I kind of think they should have casted them and, and switched. They said, I think like, well, Sean, at least I think Sean Bean should have died because he dies in everything. He should have died in these movies as well. <laughs> but now he can come back for so National Treasure I 3. I actually read that he'll there was die a in National Treasure 3. I, I, I read that there was a rumor with him coming back for the third one. <gasps> Yeah, that'd be great. I would be I, surprised if he I did. want them to flesh him out more. I I love Sean Bean. And then they can kill him off in the We can one. figure out if he was actually friends with Ben or he just decided to use Ben the whole time. Yeah. Because we still don't they know They allegedly that. play poker Because you together. know what? Also, like, they played poker Sean together. Bean and, 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 ben and uh, Nick Cage in that film seemed, like, closer at first than, like, Ben and Riley ever were, which is kind of interesting. So I wonder, like, how close were they really? introducing a new segment it's called chaos corner where we get our final last minute thoughts rapid fire brought up here's one of mine ben gates is trying to clear his father's name right or his uh, grandfather's his, name his great, and great so, grandfather's name whatever they use this whole plan to kidnap the president in order to clear his family name but in order to do that they spread a rumor that in one of like the hotels the clan used to meet there so they can no longer host the party in that hotel so they're fine tarnishing another person's history in order to clear their own name hypocritical or not yes yeah. yes on to my question now. you go matt yeah you go i'll give my answer at the end of this if so obviously there are two huge lines in the movies the first is I'm going to steal the Declaration of Independence. 
And in the second movie, it's, I'm going to kidnap the President of the United States. In the third movie, you had to pick just out of, out of the blue, what would it be? I'm going to Kool-Aid man smash through the Great Wall of China. What? That makes sense. That, did you write that down earlier? That just come out of your brain like right no, now. No, I just thought Oh, my it. God. <laughs> Uh, I cannot follow that in any way. I yeah no that wins. I'm not even gonna try. <laughs> I think I think lives as the winner line is, actually. I'm going to have sex with the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> if you're truly horny for history, you don't know exactly. what'll stop you. <laughs> okay, um, justice for Riley. He literally said when they were underground on that like thing that was moving around with their weight that w- someone had to stay behind and he would stay behind and potentially sacrifice himself for his friends and ben and abigail and said they, nothing <laughs> they yeah, don't they don't anything. not only they were so <laughs> fine with him sacrificing his life and then also what's interesting is the way that the plan works out right is that Ben has to stay behind and Riley goes up but then they find the idol that can offset Ben's weight so Ben can get up if they found the idol and Riley was still there, would they have even offered no. to yeah, save yes, Riley's life? Justice, justice for Riley. <laughs> I really don't. I think they'd be like, okay, bye, Riley. They don't give him a second thought. He says, I'll stay behind. And then, Just like, come by to save Ben me. and Abigail and he... are like, I fucking dirty. Well, no, but then Riley even says, says like, no, but... he... Yeah, he fake does their voices and is like, no, Riley, we need you. No, Riley, you can't stay behind because they will I have to say, even. if I was, like, offering to sacrifice myself for you two and you guys just didn't say a word, I'd be like, what the fuck? I'd be like, okay, now we I'd all I'd be like, you get out of my book sales. <laughs> so, they're up. Okay. The FBI agents in this movie are total bots. Sorry, this isn't a quippy, chaotic corner but I just need to, I forgot about this line that I steal from the FBI agents coming into Sadusky's office. Looks like our old friend Ben Gates is in the news again. What do you find now? Atlantis? A uh, guy came forward with a missing Booth diary page. But that's not even the best part. Listen to this. Uh, on the page are the names of the conspirators in the Lincoln assassination, as well as a previously unknown conspirator, Thomas Gates. Thomas Gates is said to be the great-great-grandfather of renowned treasure hunter Benjamin Franklin Gates. And I thought my relatives were bad. We know about this Wilkinson. Sir? Guy claims he had this page for 140 years and just suddenly comes forward with it. Why? We'll find out. Better. And I thought my relatives were bad. Yeah, that's poor writing. (laughs) Like, what was the point of this scene? I'm so to show curious. That, to show that they're stupid and the FBI head is, like, awesome. Well, it, it kind of goes into my actual next question was going to be, would you watch a spinoff on Sadusky? Yes. I would watch a Sadusky spinoff as long as those two agents well, are not my, involved. My assumption is like... it would be in his younger years, because if you remember in the first movie, he's a Freemason. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, he's the one always asking the important questions, and he's the one that seemingly... Has an idea of what Mitch is up to. Um, yep, and he's always, he's always, even if he has to pretend he's not, he always is in Ben's corner at the end of the Sadusky's day. Sadusky's a little horny for history. Yeah. He's he's horny for history and he's horny for Ben Gates. <laughs> um, my, my actual next question, is Patrick Gates dumb? 
I think he's just old. What 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 is the follow up? Well, the question. If you think about it, like you discussed earlier, it wasn't until Ben like they've been searching for these treasures for hundred. The family's been searching for the treasures for hundreds and hundreds of years. It seems like Patrick got nowhere. No, yeah. It seems like the whole family is honestly really stupid. It's really funny how in the first movie he's like, one clue is going to lead to another clue and it's all a bunch of clues and it's clues, clues, clues. It never goes anywhere. We're like, you never got a second clue. Your first clue was Charlotte and then you never went anywhere from that. (laughs) I mean, well, he might mean that he found a bunch of, he thought he had the right answer to a bunch of different things and then it turned out that it wasn't right. Maybe. Maybe. Maybe my question Maybe. was dumb. No. Here's my next chaotic question corner. Ready? In the beginning of the movie, when Ben and Riley break into Abigail's house, they come in with Phil Dunphy, right? And Phil Dunphy asks her if he can go out the next night. And she says, no, sorry, I have plans. And Ben says, oh, do you? And then she's like, but I'm free Saturday night. And then the next night you see her go out with Mitch. Yeah. Wilkinson. So she had plans with Mil- Mitch Wilkinson and went to the and did all of the booth diary page analysis and everything and just didn't tell Ben that he was she was going to go to dinner with Mitch the next night. Yes, not. Maybe she knew that or, he would freak out if Do you think so you, you think that plan was actually made? Yeah, I think so. At that point in time, she was planning on so. getting dinner with Mitch. That's she's a she's a little slimy. That's slimy. I don't love that. Maybe, I don't yeah. Maybe she just wants to, like, look at the whole thing, like, objectively and not take it, sides. It, and, it's also but... possible that it could have been, because she said that she spoke with Patrick, and then that's when, um, that's why she flew to London. So it's po- Which, by the way, both her and Ian's men get to London Wait. way too fast. Um, but, well, I, I'm just thinking it's totally possible that she could have been meeting with Miss to try to get some intel for ben but it's, it's also yeah it's also possible um i don't think so because then she would have told oh yeah ben oh yeah that's true because that happened before him. they looked at the page yeah. yeah no yeah she 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 would then have the plans previous to knowing like she would have made the plans thinking that thomas gates is completely guilty and then she realizes that there's a Playfair cipher and there could be something there, but he could still be guilty and goes to dinner knowing yeah. that. Do you do you get the impression, though, that when she's out to dinner with him, she realizes how dangerous he is or no? Yeah, I think when he says, I'm passionate about history and I'm a descendant of a Confederate general, she's like, oh, this is a racist and <laughs> I need to leave. Was I'm trying to remember, Was that did he say that? If I went to dinner with someone like that, I would text my friend and I'd say, track my location, did, did make sure I get home. Did he say that before or after she took the call from that? I'm trying. Before. Because then she goes back and he's like, Laboule, as in Edward yeah, Laboule. He goes, Eduard. <laughs> Ed, Edard Laboule? Like Edard Stark? <laughs> okay, what's your question? Uh, not a question, a very um, chaotic hot take. Um, okay, uh, going off of, again, Ty Burrell's character, Connor, uh, there's the scene in the Oval Office where Ben needs to break into the desk and find whatever he's, you know, trying to find, and so Abigail pretends to lose her earring, and they're all looking for it, and she starts distracting him, being like, maybe it's down here, and then she's, like, showing her ass off, and he's like, 
maybe, and he's diving down after her. Um, Julie Bowen would be so upset. Yeah, all (laughs) I could do in that moment to save my sanity with seeing Phil Dumpty of another woman was pretending (laughs) that 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 Abigail was Claire and then pretending that that was actually them role-playing as Clive Bixby and Juliana (laughs) and having a little sexy powwow in the Oval Office. (laughs) Okay, I've never here, I've never met anyone as invested in the Claire Dunphy, Phil Dunphy ship, but I really appreciate it. And that's the kind of chaotic energy this podcast was built on. And I appreciate it. This would have been like if we had had any more... Clive and Julian episodes, it would have been like, let's break into the Oval Office and pretend we're like sexy politicians. <laughs> Listen, they should do a, na- a Modern Family reboot when National Treasure Three. I think comes so. I definitely here. don't want to watch the ice skating scene in uh, Happy Gilmore then when Adam Sandler and Julie Bowen are together. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. Um, yeah. I pretend that he's <laughs> Phil Dumpy in that. Uh, it's Clive and Juliana on ice. My, so, my next... Uh, on a quarter question. So Nicolas Cage is somebody that I would argue was probably one of the 10 biggest actors in the world in the 90s. Um, okay. And this guy won an Oscar. In 50 years' time, do you think that these two movies are what he's going to be remembered most for? No, I don't think so. I think it fully depends on how his upcoming movie, The Unbearable Way of Massive Talent, goes. Have y'all heard of this no. movie? There is a movie coming out. Uh, hold on. Oh, wait. Isn't it like a fi- – am I wrong? Is it like a fictionalized version of him? Oh, I do know what it, it is. is. I do know what it is then. So there's a movie coming out in which Nicolas Cage plays himself. Uh, it's called The Unbearable Way of Massive Talent. It'll be released on April 22nd, 2020. The basic summary is unfulfilled and facing financial ruin, actor Nicolas Cage, so he plays himself, accepts a $1 million offer to attend a wealthy fan's birthday party. Things take a wildly unexpected turn when a CIA operative recruits Cage for an unusual mission. Taking on the role of a lifetime, he soon finds himself channeling his iconic and most beloved characters to save himself and his beloved loved ones. So not only is he playing himself, but he's going to do a parody of other characters he's played probably his national treasure role. I do have a long-term bet with one of my friends. He says that Nick Cage is going to win. Either Nick Cage is going to win a Golden Globe as Best Actor, it will win Best Motion Picture, Comedy, or Musical, or Screenplay, or Best Supporting Actor. Obviously, this long-term bet will be void if the Golden Globes as an organization cease to exist, which seems more and more likely, but curious to hear what y'all think. You you know why I like the idea of that? Because it, it... kind of reminds me of Michael Keaton and what he did with Birdman and how he I mean obviously Michael Keaton wasn't playing like a fictionalized version of himself in that movie but at the end of the day it was a movie kind of talking about how he was like big back in the day had like a dip in his career and now is like coming back and I wonder if that's what Nick Cage is trying to accomplish with a movie like this is to be like a self-reflection on his own career and I, I like that Maybe. I will say Birdman at the end of the day is also an exceptional film. It is. It's very good. So we'll see if Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent also does that. Um, See, I I would argue that these two movies are what he's going to be remembered most for because I I think that 
they have such a lasting imp- like the fact that we're talking about them right now 15 years after we saw them for the first time that's true like they it, they have such a lasting impact and the fact that like they're movies that like we'll just sit down like are these not two movies that you'll sit down on a saturday and if they're on tv you're just i'll watch them exactly and, and so i i don't think that a lot of his other movies have that lasting impact on an entire generation um, I would, but I would argue that maybe some of his movies have a lasting impact on older generations than us, and this one has the strangle kind, of, the stranglehold on us, you know, twenty somethings who grew up with these movies. Okay, the movie is called National Treasure: Book of Secrets, but what is the titular Book of Secrets? Like you would think it is the President's Secret Book. But it could also be related to Riley's book, which I would argue has more screen time than the president's book. The president's <laughs> book doesn't get introduced until the last half hour. I think it could also refer to the Booth Diary, which is also a book full of secrets, the secrets to Cibola. What do y'all think is the titular book of secrets? I think it should have just been called Books of Secrets. <laughs> that, that's a uh, problem. I, I, think, I still think it's the president's book. Which it shouldn't it's be. It's stupid, it's though. It's not even the biggest yeah, part of the movie. It's literally such a small part of the movie. It makes me mad. Uh, the third movie should be called Book of Secrets because it will talk about page 47, which... Yes. That's my next question. What's on page 47? It's about having sex with That'd the statue of the <laughs> obviously. I mean, it's just, like, so, like, ugh, they set up they set up for a trilogy and then just, like, never I, finished. I've been waiting for this never movie. Did. Listen, they say it's close. I've been waiting close. for this movie for 15 years. <laughs> I mean, they'll definitely have an age demographic that they will really reel in, and it's us. Okay, I would, I would be issue. willing to bet that if you were to go through my Twitter, at no, <laughs> at no point ever could you find more than a six-month period where I did not tweet what's on page forty-seven. <laughs> <laughs> um, can can the three of us uh, go see? Uh... National yes. Treasure Three when it comes out. Yes, someday. I will. F- I will fly to the East Coast oh, when National okay. Treasure Three comes out to see it okay. with both of you. You all have to pick a city, but I'll fly I'll, to your. I'll coast. be. I'll be wherever the movie is. <laughs> uh, actually, no, we have to see it in DC. Oh, okay. That'll be our DC trip. <laughs> all right. On that note, should we wrap? Um, yeah, mine's not that. That was a good way to wrap. I was just gonna say, oh, they let Abigail drive in a chase scene. That was cool. That was it, though. <laughs> When does she drive? Oh, yeah. She drives out of the Library of Congress. And she's like, I don't think so. (laughs) Um, I I did have one other thing. Yeah. What's yours? Just how absurdly good this cast. Oh, yeah. I mean, they did get nominated for two Razzies. Both Nicolas Cage and John Voight both got nominated for Razzie Awards. So how good are they? I'm just saying, if you see the cast, like, without watching the movie, if you see the cast, if you look, go onto Google and type in National Treasure Cast and you see the names pop up, you have some heavy hitters. I mean, Ed Harrison and Helen Mirren. Harvey Keitel. Am I missing? Okay, he's, he's fine. He's an all-time great actor. <laughs> Is that uh, it? Justin Bartha. Nick Cage! <laughs> Again, Nicolas Cage won an Oscar. Not for this movie. Okay, sure. <laughs> other actors have also won Oscars and been in other movies. I, I'm just saying, like, you look at this movie as a whole. Like, Diane Kruger is awesome. Uh, 
She is. I did intend to have watched Inglorious Bastards by the time we recorded this podcast. You're also forgetting happen. that Ty Burrell is <laughs> That's true. That's true. Best cast of all time. I'm sorry. On that note, that wraps up this week's episode of Chaos on the Set. Libs, thank you so much for joining us as our resident National Treasure scholar. We'll definitely have you back next time there's a National Treasure property or something related to cover. But in the meantime, would you like to tell the people where they can find you on the internet? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram and on Letterboxd at Matt underscore Liberman if you want all my steaming hot takes and to wonder what I think is on page 47. <laughs> um you can find me on twitter at k underscore wyatt you can't find me on letterbox i have one but michael said that he would impale me on the torch of the statue of liberty if i let you guys know what it is so <laughs> and you can find me on twitter and letterbox at micromate on twitter at shrithimate on letterbox and don't forget to follow the show on twitter instagram and letterbox you can find us at chaos on the set <laughs>